0: So take note of our questions on the, the screen this morning, and uh, we'll respond together at the, at the end with those, with those questions. So the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, we'll be starting in verse 31 in just a moment. Um, I, I can't believe that it's uh, already December 15th. Uh, it's my dad's birthday today, it's my, one of my best friend's birthday uh, today, um, but, but here we are. December 15th, um, and we're back in Luke this morning, and so we're making progress uh, throughout Luke's gospel. I want to start off by asking this little question, this simple question, and and maybe we can ponder on it for just a moment, and then we will, excuse me, read the text together, and here's the question. What does it mean to you when another brother or another sister in Christ tells you that they are going to pray for you or that they have been praying for you. What does that, what does that mean to you? How does that, What does that make you feel? Now, I want to say first that, number one, we hear that a lot. We hear a lot that people are going to pray for one another, that gonna, I'm going to pray for you or whatnot. And unfortunately, in our Christian culture... It has become a cliche. It has become a, a cliche that that because someone's being nice, they 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 just they say it because they're in the way of being nice. But but I, I want to say it in the context of brothers and sisters in Christ that that honestly we mean that we're gonna we're praying for one another. So that when this one brother or one sister says, I'm praying for you in this matter, that that we know they've been they have been praying for us. They've been caring for us in that way. They've been shepherding us in that way and interceding for us in those ways. Maybe it's a difficult decision that a sister who has a need and is trying to weigh through that and someone comes up to you and them and says, I've been praying for you in this time. Or maybe it's a a brother in Christ who Who's been going through a season of temptation and trials and a difficulty of sin and whatever it may be? And, and, and then there's brothers that come up beside them and say, "Brother, I'm praying for you. You can do it. Let's endure together, praying for you. Don't give up. That's the kind of prayer I'm talking about. So let's move beyond the cliche, let's talk about that for just a second. I mean there's a, there's a unique closeness. That brothers and sisters enjoy with one another when we are praying for one another. When we are lifting one another up. There's, there's an encouragement. There's something humbling about it when someone tells us that I'm praying for you and I have been praying for you. And these are the ways that I've been praying. There's, there's something humbling about that. There's something incredibly encouraging about that especially when we begin to see how the Holy Spirit has been working and we, we're like man them prayers are being answered and and I see those maybe not in the ways that I, I, I think that they should go or maybe even in the ways that we've been praying but the Holy Spirit is working and, and moving in those ways and we can together see the the glory of God in our lives and in, in the life of the church because we're praying for one another it's humbling and it's encouraging. Man, is it encouraging. It's, it's joy building. It's edifying. It's God glorifying. It's unifying of the body of Christ for the church. Not to mention the, the blessing of the one who has been doing the praying. That they have, been, that they have received. And seeing how the Lord is answering prayers. Praying for one another is so encouraging and meaningful and uplifting. Now, as wonderful as that is, brothers and sisters, to pray for one another in Christ, the Bible teaches us something even beyond that. It teaches us something wonderful to consider, and that is that Jesus himself is praying for us. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's interceding before the Father for us. So if we put it in context of one another praying for one, another, consider how much now even more that Jesus is praying for us. And then when we're praying for one another, we're, we're only participating what Jesus is doing for us and doing with us and for us. The Son of God at the right hand of the Father, praying and interceding in our behalf, on my behalf, on your behalf, on Christians all over the world. And our passage reveals us to us this morning that encouraging, that encouraging point as our time in the upper room winds down This is what Jesus tells us, that he is praying. Let's look at verse 31 together, and let's see what he says. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you, to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or, or knapsack or sandals, did, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what, it, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here, two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. You can read that attitude in that last line there. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word, and may your Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see this holy inspired and inerrant word for your glory and our joy amen so this is in luke's gospel the conclusion of the upper room the events of the the upper room and next sunday lord willing we'll be coming to the mount of olives in the in the garden of 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 gethsemane but in the upper room however Jesus has been showing and teaching many things, some amazing things. They they celebrated the, the last Passover together. They celebrated the last Passover together. Uh, but also at the at the same time, we saw Jesus how he has instituted the, the, the Lord's Supper. When you know when we take the the Lord's Supper, it's a, it's a meal of, of, of remembrance. It's a meal of remembrance for us that, that He is that one and true sacrifice for our sins. But, but for the disciples, it wasn't a meal of remembrance. It was a meal of pointing to what's going to happen the next day. The meal of the, the meal of the of future, what was going to happen, that it was a pointing forward that Jesus was going to, to die. He said, This is the bread of my the body that is given to you. This bread is my body that is given for you. This, is, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's speaking language of his impending death that was coming soon. The beginning of the new covenant that was predicted hundreds of years earlier. in Jeremiah 31 was, a, was at hand and it was, and it was coming. And Jesus is telling them again that he is going to soon die. And as we saw throughout this upper room events, man, the disciples just had no clue. And they, they had no real perception of, of what's really going on. I, th- I think they, they kind of catch the, the hinting of Jesus is going to the cross, he's going to be betrayed. And that's why we see Peter in our passage just more and say, no, Jesus, not me. I'm not the one that's going to deny you. And yet... We see their lack of knowledge and knowing what's going on, and their false humility, their self-exaltation of who's the greatest. I'm the greatest, and here's the evidence of why am I? I'm the greatest. These guys really do not look good at all. But in their lack of understanding, in their constant need for correction and redirection and soon to be denial and abandoning of jesus when he is arrested what is jesus now doing what has he been doing he's encouraging them as we saw last week i mean this ascent in the gospel right he lifts them up in the in the gospel and even here he encourages them They're seeking to build their own kingdoms and their own self-greatness. They're arguing who is the greatest. And Jesus turns to them and shows them the gospel of the true servant who came to to serve and not to be served and to be a ransom for many. He literally shows them that that greatness in the kingdom of God is being the youngest and being the servant. And the truly greatness is loving one another as Christ has loved us. They wanted their own kingdom, and Jesus promises them a kingdom, Ain't even a spot at the table. You know, one thing that's evident, and one thing we see evident even in our passage this morning, is that Jesus is always giving us things that we do not deserve. Always. The blessing and joy that Jesus has given us, that he has Given me is always disproportionate to anything I have ever given or done or sacrificed or ever will do. It doesn't even play in the same ballpark. All I ever brought is my sin and my guilt and my failures and my shame. And he has given me nothing but grace and love and forgiveness and, and peace. And in and a, and a grace-filled, gospel-shaped family, all he has given me good things. And in our passage this morning, I know it talks about Satan and it talks about temptation and it talks about... Peter's denial and swords and needing things and to be prepared for what's about to come. But, But all of that seems negative. But this passage is really about the encouragement that Jesus gives us in continually outpouring of his goodness and his grace in our lives. Encouragement for his disciples, knowing what they are about to face, even above and beyond what he knows he's about to face. And now the encouragement for us as his church. It's the, it's the kind of encouragement, and, and when we unpack it, I hope is encouraging to our souls. And in a sense, it overwhelms our souls with, with his grace and with his mercy. You know, when, when we see texts and passages where Jesus is passing out encouragement, we should be there with our hands wide open. <laughs> and ready to receive. With our hands open and our hearts open. And so this morning, I want you to be encouraged. But I don't want you to be encouraged because I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged because this is what Jesus is doing. He's encouraging his people. He wants you to be encouraged. If you are in Christ, he wants you to be encouraged in hearing these words that he spoke to his disciples. He is encouraging his People. And so I have two points of his encouragement. The first point is the provision in the gospel. And second, the prayer for our faith. The prayer for our faith. So, first is the provision in the gospel. And we're going to go a little out of order this morning. We're going to look at verses 35 through 38 first, and then we're going to jump back up to verse 31. And in this, we see the provision that he has made for us in the gospel. These are, again, the last words that Jesus speaks uh, in Luke's gospel in the upper room, right? The upper room at the time. And these are words for encouragement for our provision. So what is, what is provision? Provision is the, the things that we need in order to do life. And what Jesus is telling us is that in the provision, the things that I have given you, what means more, what is more, what is first, is the gospel. And here's how he does it. Look at verse 35. He says, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. Literally, not that they didn't say anything, they said nothing. We, We lacked nothing. Now, you might not remember because it was a long time ago. We've been in Luke for ages now, and, and but if you look back, Luke chapter nine, Jesus sent out the twelve disciples. He sent out the the, the twelve the, the twelve disciples to to go out and to preach the gospel, and, and to do in fact to do miracles of the kingdom, proving that the kingdom of God is coming. And when Jesus sent them out, he gave them some crazy packing instructions. Basically, pack nothing. In fact, leave your shoes here, boys. You're not going to need them. Leave your food here. Leave your wallet here. Take your shoes off. Leave your cloak. I'll take care of them. You go out. Don't take anything with you. Chapter 10. They all come back. They tell about the amazing things. In chapter 10, Jesus then commissions 72 disciples now to go out. And to do the very same thing, to proclaim that the kingdom has come and, and proclaim the gospel. And again, he gave those very strict rules. And why? Why in those two times, for all this now, 12 disciples to 72 disciples, why would he give these very specific instructions to basically bring nothing with you? Because he wanted them to see firsthand. Firsthand, this is how God is going to provide for you. That everything that God gives you is by His grace. And that He is going to provide for you all that you need. And He asked them, Were you lacking anything? Nothing. Nothing. I was lacking nothing, Lord. Verse 35, listen, verse 35, this is what Jesus is saying then. He said, listen guys, you, you went out without any shoes and, and did any of you come back with blisters? Did any of you, uh, did, did any of you even catch a thorn or, or a splinter or, or did you twist an ankle? Did you go hungry and, and when you're thirsty, did you not have water? Did you miss out on a place to sleep? No, Jesus, we had had everything. Everything. And and in fact, it wasn't just in those two side missions that God had providentially cared for his people and for the disciples. He has been showing them now for, for, for years God's providential care for them. And it was their experience that Jesus provided all the time. They saw and experienced some of the most miraculous provisions for their needs over and over again. From the overloading of their fishing nets, to healing and raising from the dead some of their own family members, to silencing the storm on the boat that they thought they were all going to die on. With just a couple fish and a couple pieces of bread, they watched Jesus miraculously feed five to 10,000 people, and they firsthand carrying baskets around that never emptied of food. They saw firsthand, daily, a front row seat to God's providential care, including that very meal that they had that night together in the upper room. But look at verse 36, because Jesus is telling us here that things are about to change he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So Jesus is telling his disciples from now on things are going to change. Things are changing. So back in those, those early days, you didn't need to bring the money bag or the knapsack, which is a backpack. You didn't need to bring those particular things because I've provided for you. And how one of the great ways that I've provided for you was, was in, the, the I had. in the popularity I had. The popularity I had. You saw how God po- uh, provided for you through the people that we've met. And so you had plenty through the support, you had plenty. All your needs were met. But things are changing. That's not going to be so. I'm not going to be with you anymore. My popularity? Out the window. My popularity out the window. And my, your acceptance because of me is going to be gone. Your everyday experience and everything was going to be completely flipped upside down in just a matter of hours. He wasn't going to be there to feed them like he has done and to serve them at the table. Those particular provisions will not be there anymore. And so, verse 36 then makes sense. Make provisions. Be ready. Take the money bag this time. Take the knapsack. Take the backpack. And if there's any doubt, and if there's any doubt for them or even for us about the severity of the coming troubles and obstacles that they're about to face, including the the obstacles that we face and for them that they are going to face in just a matter of hours, then what Jesus tells them to bring should just settle it. Because when he instructs them to go sell their cloak for a sword, that means things are going to get hard. Things are going to get tougher. Whenever a weapon is more important than a, a coat, then it's safe to say that hard times are here. Now there's a debate. That I've read to, to exactly, you know, what is Jesus' intent here when he tells them to go get a go get a sword. I think it's pretty safe to say with Jesus' reaction when they come back with two swords, and what Peter tells, or what Jesus tells Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, that I don't think Jesus is really wanting us to arm up with weaponry for the sake of the kingdom the sword however that Jesus is speaking of is the importance of our preparation the importance of our of our knowing and understanding that we will face intense opposition and in order to be faithful then with the gospel and and then taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, not just surviving, not just retreating, not just killing all of our enemies, but with the sword of preparation of the gospel, we can go forth even in the midst of that opposition and take the gospel as it's an offensive, not a defensive. Gospel doesn't mean we are on defensive. The gospel makes us we live in, in an offensive posture. We're not losing. The kingdom of God is not failing. But we have the sword. We have the sword of the Spirit, the, the gospel. The gospel is not spread through sword or through armies. Missions is not done down the barrel of a gun. Some of the lowest times in Christian history was when people, and I'm not even going to call them Christians, tried to advance the kingdom of God with the sword. And I'm not even, I shouldn't even use kingdom of God because they were advancing their own little kingdoms, their own greatness. No, the kingdom of God is spread through the proclamation of the kingdom, of the gospel, Fear and coercion does nothing to bring about gospel transformation. It goes forth by preaching of the word of God by his people. And as the Holy Spirit calls unbelievers to faith and they will be transformed. That's how the kingdom of God goes forth. And so we prepare, we go with our wallets We go with our backpacks, we go with our our shoes, and we go with our swords prepared and and wise, proclaiming the gospel offensively, living living and proclaiming the gospel in a very opposing world. And this is good for these guys here, because they're about to face unbelievable opposition. Unbelievable opposition in their own hearts and from the world around them. Let us have wisdom then in how we prepare. But look at verse 37. We're getting now to the, the provision now. Let's see how God has provided for us in Christ. So he's not just leaving us hanged, right? Hanging with nothing. Look at what he gives us. Verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And here's the scripture. And he was numbered. With the transgressors. Okay? For what is written about me has its fulfillment. In just a couple hours, he's saying that text is going to be fulfilled. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 53, verse 12 we we should be kind of familiar by Isaiah 53 at this point but but verse 12 Jesus is kind of quoting this one little verse in Isaiah uh, Isaiah he he wrote this 600 years ago foretold the the one who would come and to bear in himself the the wrath of god for sinners and and jesus is saying here very intently this is the one of the only times he really intently says that isaiah 53 i'm fulfilling it it is about me not about anybody else it is about me and i'm fulfilling it and you will see it with your own eyes That's what he's telling. You're going to see it with your own eyes. This very famous text is going to be fulfilled in him. Because the very next day, he's going to be crucified on the cross between two transgressors. Between two thieves. And we're going to see that next year or so. Between two thieves in Luke 23. And this is our encouragement and our provision that Jesus has made for us. Because at the, in, the, in the cross is the heart of the gospel. It is the center of the gospel. And so what is Jesus saying? Yeah, take your money bag, fill your belts, put your shoes on, get your sword. But oh, the text will be fulfilled. The scripture will be fulfilled in me. Isaiah 53, 12 therefore i will divide him a portion with many i'm going to give you the whole verse though i will divide a portion with the many he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors and yet he bore the sin of many how has god provided then he has given us his son The provision that god has given us we should look first and foremost is the encouragement that he has given us his son who has been poured out unto death on a cross the wrath of god then was poured upon him and even though he was sinless he was numbered with transgressors and yet he took upon himself the sins of many He became sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, memorize that verse. And Jesus is telling them, this is your provision now. This This is what you look to. This is what you hope toward. Look for all your provision in the gospel look for all your righteousness in me look at all your identity in who you are in what i have done in the cross and on the cross and that you are forgiven that's the good news of the gospel that's the good news of the gospel That's the provision that God has given to us first and foremost. And every one of our prayers of thanksgiving should always start with the provision of the gospel. Thank you, God. Every meal we sit down should be a thankfulness in the the cross. And the thankfulness for, for his grace and his mercy and all that he has given to us and for us. And think about Jesus in this very moment, who's just hours away from going to be arrested and then beaten and put on a cross. He's being totally other-centric. I mean, if anyone had, could have better things on his mind, like, I don't know, saving the world, then it's Jesus. And yet, what's on his mind? Boys, look to the gospel Look to the good news of the gospel. Be built up in the gospel. Church, be built up in the gospel. Be encouraged by the gospel, always turning to the good news of the gospel. I think when it comes to this life, we often look way too hard in the wrong direction at the wrong things. It's so easy to spend so much time caring and worrying about our provisions and our preparations for this life. And yes, God does care about those things and God has miraculously provided for each and every one of us in those things. However, even though Jesus is telling us to be prepared and to plan and to be faithful and to be wise and to be discerning as you take The gospel through an opposing world we are to look more into the provision that he has given to us in the gospel that he went to the cross for the forgiveness of your sin do you look to that provision much is that the a provision of the Lord that you often find rest in a provision of the Lord that you find encouragement in? Even, even more than the food and the clothes and the, and the swords. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you prepare yourselves and to prepare your hearts in the gospel much? We must not be caught up in the things that the disciples did at the end of that little passage there. Jesus is telling them to look to the provision that they'll find in him and his work and what he does, and they come back with two swords. They were more concerned with their their weapons than they were with resting in Christ. Let's be the people that find provision and rest in the provision that he has given us, and that is the good news of the gospel, which is the very thing we take. To a world that's finding rest and things that are failing and failing and failing constantly. Let's show them that the gospel can bear the weight of our hearts and our lives as we rest it in it ourselves. And now the point that I really want to see this morning is though is back in 31. Is back in 31. Prayer for our faith. So, first was the provision for us in the gospel. Second is prayer for our faith. And I think that when we look at this second, we'll really understand how wonderful that first one really is, too. And it'll bring it close to home. So, let's go back to verse 31. And I want you to see something amazing in what Peter says. I already gave it away. You know what it is. In verse 31, jesus speaks to peter but notice how jesus starts it off he says simon simon now wait a minute peter has already been renamed right peter's already been renamed wait a minute why are you calling me simon and there's an emphasis that he's making because he's saying it he's saying it twice but i think he's also making the emphasis back to peter and say peter that old self is still there bro The old self that wants to to trust in your own understanding and to lean on your own understanding is still there. Simon, Simon. He says, behold, Satan demanded. He demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, there's an interesting passage there. Satan demanded. He demanded. This is, this is like Job chapter 1 kind of stuff, right? Where, where Satan comes before God and asks, asks God, says, hey, listen, you think Job is your man, but if you let me have a crack at him, I'll show you that he's not really your man. And that's the kind of thing that Satan is doing with in here. He's saying here, he's, I demanded, he demanded, that he might sift you wheat. Now, here's what's interesting about this verse. If there's not enough already, is the little word you there. The little word you there, I think, should actually say you all, or for us, y'all. Because that word there in the Greek is actually plural, it's not singular, it's plural. So what does that mean? That means Jesus isn't just talking to Simon, Simon. I mean, the emphasis is, is to Simon because he's going to talk about Peter and in in, in his denial in, in just a minute. But really, he is speaking to all the boys. He's speaking to all the disciples. Peter and all the disciples. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat sifting like we we don't do that anymore but it's it's actually it's a separating right between the the what the, the wheat kernel and the in the hole that comes on the outside the hole is unedible. if you ever got a wheat bread and it wasn't done right and you choked you can't really chew the thing it's stuck in your teeth and all that the little the little chaff and, and and what they do is they it's a violent motion of shaking the shaking this thing to separate it to to cause a, a breakup of the seed so that so that the the wheat and the chaff can be sh- uh, uh, separated and there's shaking and shaking I mean they move it back and forth back and forth against a uh, against a blade in the bucket and it's back and forth back and forth And, and jesus used an example that this is what he wants to do he wants to sift you like wheat, especially now in these coming days he wants to sift you like again when everything is going to be turned upside down when all that provision you're used to is going to be gone it's all going to be turned upside down and so Jesus is letting them in. He's, he's cutting them in to some big, deep reality that I don't think they had any idea what was going on or no concept of. And that is that the evil one, the accuser, has come up against them, and he wants to see them fail, fall, and die. And they have no idea what they're up against. That's what he's telling them. You have no idea what you are up against. But I do. But Jesus knows. What's coming is, is not going to be just a struggle of the heart. Your denial, Peter, is not just going to be a struggle of the the heart and your abandoning of me, all the rest of you guys, isn't just going to be a a tug of war in your heart, but rather, as Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities and against cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are forces that are lined up against them that they have no concept of. But there is one thing, but there is one thing that stands between them and such evil, sifting, temptation. One thing. But I have prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Verse 32. Brothers and sisters, do you see that that makes all the difference? That makes all the difference. That Jesus is standing in the the gap for them. This is the, the difference. Do you know that this is the difference between Peter and Judas? Why does Peter repent and Judas goes out and hangs himself? Because underneath it they're both fulfilling their desires but underneath it it, the difference is because Jesus has prayed for them I've prayed for you Simon I've prayed for you John I've prayed for you James Jesus has prayed and this is so important for us to to understand here because brothers and sisters this truth This is what sharpens the sword. This is what sharpens the sword. This is what gives us preparation and boldness and faith. This is what sharpens us. This is what deepens us. This is what gives us strength when there shouldn't be any strength. It's what keeps us coming back to the Christ to repent and to live in the light. It's the difference. It's the difference, beloved that even in our blindness, and how we have no clue a concept, sometimes and most of the time as the disciples, that in all times, that each and every one of us, we are in need of intercession and prayer of the Savior. And he is praying. He is praying. Yes, he has provided for us in the gospel, and I never want us to diminish that. That is so vitally important. But he didn't just die for us. And he he didn't just was raised for us. But did you know that he lives? He lives, ascended at the right hand of the Father. To do what? To intercede for his people as our great high priest. He's praying for us. He lives at the right hand of the Father praying for us, praying for you, praying for me. And I don't think it's one of those big generic prayers something because our minds are so small and finite that we just can't really comprehend and know how to pray for every little thing, for every person, much less for each other. We really struggle with that. But no, I think it's very specific. In the mind of Christ as He is praying for us because He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is the Son of God and He is praying for you and He is praying for me. He's praying prayers like this He's praying, keep them from sin, lead them from temptation, keep them strong in the strength of the Lord and the Holy Spirit. God, bring them into repentance, show them how to delight. And to enjoy the hallowing of your name. These are the kind of things he's praying. He is praying deep things for us. And it's true. It is true that we have an enemy who is greater than any one of us could ever imagine. We were driving home on Monday from Atlanta on 75 and just outside of Atlanta, maybe the McDonough area, there was these signs on the side of the road that someone, I don't know how they put them there without narrowly getting hit by a car, but signs that people put out, and it said, and they were in order, one of them was like, Satan's a moron, Satan's a coward, and, and there was like three or four of them, I missed the rest of them, I got the point. And, and I, I I get it, but he's powerful, He. He's powerful. He's not JV like us. He's beyond varsity. He's major league, best at his game. Tom Brady, I just compared Tom Brady to Satan. I'm a Dolphins fan, I'm allowed to do that for those who care about the NFL anymore. He is the enemy of our souls. He is the enemy of our joy. He is the enemy of our church, and he is the enemy of life itself. And he is far smarter and far cunning than any one of us. And in our own strength, we could not stand. But what does Jesus say? One word, we sing this, one word shall fail him. One word shall fail him. Because far greater than Satan, in his schemes, in his cunning, in his work, and in his camouflage, far greater is Jesus Christ, our mighty fortress, who is interceding for us. And his prayer is far more powerful than his scheme, the Satan's schemes, his siftings, his temptations, and his power. There is no power in the universe that can compare to Jesus' prayer for his people. Nothing. You know, prayer for us can be a struggle. Sometimes it just feels like our prayers are just kind of hitting the ceiling, Right? They're just kind of going nowhere, and and we don't think that they're sufficient or or efficient. We we just think they're going nowhere, and we just get discouraged when we pray. That's why it's so hard. That's why sometimes we, we don't pray. We struggle with prayer. We struggle with prayer, but Jesus does not struggle in prayer. His prayers are effectual. His prayers are powerful and invincible. And they are prayers for his people. And you, you got to look at this verse and, and almost see that uh, Ephesians 2, 3 there. We're talking about Satan demanded to sift you. You were going to go down. You're going to deny me and all this stuff. But I, but God, I have prayed for you. And that's going to make all the difference, Peter. It's going to make all the difference. Remember this. Because remember what he tells them. He's like, I've prayed for you, but he tells them what? He tells them, this is what I've prayed. I've prayed that your faith would not fail. I prayed that your faith would not fail and that you would be strengthened in your faith. And he also prayed that. And when you turn again, strengthen your brothers now we have to kind of just stop and look at the language here for a minute look at the tender care that jesus is saying here to him and when you have deterred when you turn when you repent not if you repent peter not peter i i'm praying and hoping that you repent but when you repent peter strengthen your brothers What do you think Peter is going to struggle with after he hears that rooster crow? He's going to remember the denials. He's going to remember the the curse words he used in those denials. He's going to hear in his head what many of us have heard when we have sinned. You're a failure. He's going to hear, you're a failure. How could you do that? You're not even a Christian, Peter. All of that was a waste. That's what he's going to hear. That's what we hear. That's what what we hear. Was was any of it even real? How about that? And Jesus wants Peter to know this. He says, I have prayed for you when you you turn. Meaning, Peter, hold on, brother. You're going to repent. Repent. You're going to repent. You're going to go through this, but remain strong. You will repent. repent. I have prayed for you that you will repent. And this is why Jesus' encounter with Peter on the shores of Galilee after the, the resurrection was so important. Because Peter is, or Jesus wants Peter to make the connection with his repentance and his restoration and his providential care for them and his shepherding of them. He wants them to know that it is his grace and in his, his mercy. And that the verse, again, of Isaiah 53.12 is being fulfilled in him. The very end of that text. Did you notice I didn't read that last line? Makes intercession for transgressors. He is praying for you and he is praying for me. Transgressors that we would endure that our faith would be strengthened. That when we sin, when you are at your weakest and most vulnerable moment to believe lies and doubts and to be sifted by Satan, he says, I'm praying for you. And I'm praying that your faith will not fail, that it would not fail, and that you would repent. This is why Brothers and sisters, we should not be afraid of repentance. We shouldn't look at repentance as being so bad and so negative, and I'm going to be judged and I'm going to be kicked out. Because that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is doing here. And it's the exact opposite of what he instructs his church and his people to do. To love and to pray and to continually accept, because that's what he does in the gospel. And have you ever felt like Peter? Peter? When you realized how stupid and evil and wicked you have been in your sin, and yet he graciously led you to repentance and turning from sin, do you remember how you felt? Still low, still beaten up, but also filled with gratitude and joy. With a new hope in the restoration because of the gospel, the provision of the gospel. Have you ever then wondered at that moment, now what? Now what? Well, Jesus tells us the now what. That's what he told Peter to do. He said, go strengthen the brothers. Well, what does that mean then? He says, go tell them. Go tell them how I've strengthened you. Go tell them how I have prayed for you. That when you turn, that you would repent. Repent. Tell them about my forgiveness in your repentance. Tell them about the joy that even in the midst of your sin I still love you. I've still forgiven you. Go tell them. So what do you do? Do we try to hide it? Because we're embarrassed about our sin? Or do we trust in the words of Jesus? We trust in the words of Jesus and we go tell the brothers. Because we could strengthen them in their sin and in their weakness. We can be strengthening their faith because we're not proclaiming our sin. We're proclaiming the grace of the Savior. He has provided for us provision in the gospel and he has prayed for our faith. He has prayed for us and for our faith. God became man. He took on flesh and he dwelt among us, Emmanuel, God with us. The point of the incarnation was the cross and that he would accomplish salvation in the forgiveness of sins. But here today, 2,000 years later and more from his death and from his resurrection, Brothers and sisters, his words still ring true, and they are encouraging us. And that we can be confident that the Son of God, who was born Emmanuel, God with us, still dwells with us in the Holy Spirit. And yet now he is also before the throne of God, praying and interceding for you and for me today. He knows the enemy. He knows our hearts. He knows our our needs. He knows what we will need. And he is what? Praying for you. That in our day today, that in our every thoughts, in our every emotion, in our every struggle, and in our every sin and suffering and need that we may have, he knows and he is praying. I hope that you see how much this presses us, this encouragement presses us back to him. To rely on him and to trust in him because it is only by his help and his strength and his power and his gospel is the only help that we need and is all the help that we need. Trust in him, put your faith in him, And do not lean on your own understanding, and he will make your path straight. That's true encouragement. And this is the encouragement that builds real joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for these great promises of encouragement. Oh, Lord, how we need to remember the gospel the provision, what a a rich provision that we have in the gospel. No matter what need may come our way, no matter what opposition we may face, let us remember the one who was numbered among transgressions, our transgressors, and who has fulfilled that. And that now he is interceding for transgressors. Father, we are thankful for the promise that Jesus, our great high priest, he is praying for us. And he is praying that our faith would not fail and that we would be strengthened so that we would strengthen the brothers, strengthen one another. Help us to understand these texts even more, Lord, as we, as we respond. Let, let the, the good news of Christ and the grace of Christ, just let it press on us even more as it has drawn us this morning. Show us in the places where we, we must repent and we must confess our sin. And let us, let us live in the good news, the good news of the gospel that we have been forgiven in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.